0: Hello, my lovely people, and welcome to The Fletcher Files, a Murder, She Wrote podcast with your host, Monty. This week, we will be talking about Dead Letter, season six, episode six, first aired November 5th, 1989. And the IMDb summary reads, Jessica's acquisition of an old bureau at a rummage sale unleashes a chain of events that lead to the death of a local volunteer fireman in a furniture store. So, yeah, basic um, and to the point. (laughs) So we do have a piece of trivia. And it says that the house of Bud and Lois Frixie and the home featured in the TV series Growing Pains 1985 are one and the same. So there you go, okay? Reusing sets as it were, okay? (laughs) There's exactly one exterior shot of this house and good on people who would have recognized that because I don't remember when Growing Pains ended. So it might have been at the same, you know, this is 1989. If it was still running at that time, Then it would be easy enough for people to, even in that one scene, to have recognized the exterior of the house. So we have two returners. First, we have Peter Fox, and we will recognize him as Bud Johnson from The Body Politics, season four, episode 22. And he was Kathleen Lane, who was running for Congress her campaign manager and the victim this was the one where they thought that kathleen a woman of a certain age was in a relationship a sexual relationship with her campaign manager this young attractive man even though she had uh an old rich husband so Yeah, they put two and two together and they got five, unfortunately, and he ended up dead. In this episode, he plays Ron Stiller, and this is his last Murder, She Wrote episode. Then we have George Firth, and we will recognize him as Farley Pressman from No Laughing Murder, season three, episode 18, and he was the murderer, and he was embezzling, okay? And we're gonna get back to that at the end of this episode, okay? He was their business manager, I believe. In No Laughing Murder, there was uh, Mac and Murray. Yes, (laughs) okay? (laughs) Reaching all the way back to that many seasons ago, uh, three seasons ago, and Farley was either their was their business manager, so he ha- handled their contracts, their payouts, things like that. And he ends up killing their lawyer. Was he their no, no? He ends up killing. Was that their former business partner? Anyway, oh, anyway, that's not important. Okay. <laughs> Go back and listen to that review, watch that episode, you'll get it. But yes, in this episode, he plays Fred Owens. So the cast, we have Lois and Bud Frixie. We have Agnes, we have Ron Stiller, we have Fred Owens, Stanley Holmes, Connie Kowalski, Carl Wilson, Everett, Aaron, Jack, and of course, we're in Cabot Cove, so we have Seth, Mort, and Floyd. And of course, since we are back in Cabot Cove, they would not do this to us except in Szechuan Dragon. Okay. Okay. Jessica is in this episode. Okay. (laughs) Finally. So let's get into the episode. So we start out at a rummage sale being held to raise funds for a new fire engine for the volunteer fire house. Now in, I don't know if there are any states in the United States that have actual paid firefighters. Everywhere that I've lived have had volunteer firefighters. So they are not paid and this is 100% volunteer. So in Cabot Cove, It's volunteer. Now, if you live in a state or in a country where your firefighters are civil servants as your police are, then this may seem strange to you. But for whatever reason, for whatever reason, our police force are civil servants, but our fire department, firefighters are volunteer, okay? wild. So it's based off of like donations and I'm sure they get some tax money, but that's why the areas that have volunteer fire service, they will send around. They also do this for the police force, but I'm like, "Mm, y'all, y'all get money from the government. But for the firefighters, they will send around or they'll make calls or send brochures about donating money because they are volunteers. So it's not like we're trying to supplement in a sense. It's we're trying to supplement, but if your house catches on fire, you want somebody to come there. And I will tell you, thankfully I have never been in need of the fire department or emergency services, but I have seen them respond and they will respond two, sometimes three uh, stations deep. So each station usually has about two fire trucks, right? And they will, depending on the size of the fire, they will send both of their trucks or they will call on other station houses in the area to send a truck. They show up, okay? They show up, volunteer or not, they show up. So if you want to make sure that God forbid you need the fire services that if they're volunteer, donate when you can. Okay. But anyway, so what Cabot Cove is doing is they're having a rummage sale or a thrift sale, a garage sale, a yard sale, whatever you want to call it. There's many different names and Seth is complaining because he's like, the the choices, we're getting bottom of the barrel stuff. Like, this is, how are they trying to raise money with this low level of quality stuff? Like, this is, people got rid of, apparently, all the good stuff and sold all that stuff already in previous rummage sales, but now <laughs> it's down to... You clean it out, that somebody's house, and it, this was in the garage, It got water damage and stuff like that. <laughs> but instead of throwing it out or donating it to, well, we have something called like junk luggers and there's other services that you can hire that will help clean out. And if they're able to donate, they will donate on your behalf and send you a receipt. Um, instead of doing something like that, or just putting it out on the street and saying for free, okay? Or if the garbage man get it, the garbage man get it. (laughs) They're actually lugging this stuff to the firehouse, okay? In the parking lot or wherever, outside the firehouse to sell to their fellow townsfolk. Okay, okay. (laughs) It's a noble cause, but people really put some junk out there. So that's the disrespectful part. And so Jessica is like, yeah, um, this ain't great. So <laughs> but they see the kids playing on the old fire engine. Now they're trying to replace that one or get an additional one. But I think just to replace that one because Kavakova's butt so big. And Jessica's like, oh, it's always so great. You know, kids always want to be firefighters. Right. And Seth is like, not me. I always wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to play doctor. Now, I'm like, "Mm, you out here playing doctor, Seth, when you was a little kid? Mm, mm, okay. That means different things to different people. But he was like, I think I took my first appendix out at the age of six. The eye roll that Jessica gave him and was like, come on, and pulled him on into the rummage sale was legendary, okay? Now we also learn in this episode that Mayor Sam Booth is just fascinated by the whole, by firefighters, the fire trucks, the, the whole thing, right? Now he's the mayor, he is not a firefighter or a former firefighter or anything like that. But because of his passion for this, they get whatever resources they need to get, okay? He is at the firehouse every opportunity he can get. We see him there, okay, at the firehouse during an important meeting, quote unquote, okay? So this is like where his heart lies, which at the end of the day, for the citizens, that's not terrible because it's fire service and it's extremely important. You know, he also has a good relationship with Mort, but he stays out of Mort's business, which... Is needed. Okay. <laughs> stay out of police business. Give the fire services the resources they need to ensure that our properties don't burn to the ground and people uh don't end up injured or worse. And stay out of their business, okay? You come, you can play some pinochle you can play some poker or whatnot with them, but <laughs> You can't get on the truck, okay? You can't get on the truck for real, for a real fire. So anyway, so Jessica and Seth bump into Lois. And she's like, oh, what do you think of the rummage sale this year? And both of them, having already said that this is in shambles, like this is just trash that people are trying to push off on their neighbors, they both find a way to be polite and respectful and say, oh, it's a beautiful day today. (laughs) It's like, oh yes, this is a perfect day to have this, yes. So they avoid the question. Um, I'm sure Lois gets that, but whatever. We're not gonna call them out because they're trying to be respectful. So Jessica says, well, you know, where's Bud, her husband? And she says, oh, well, he's working already. He's in charge of the secondhand furniture. And so Jessica says, oh, well, I might be able to find a small bureau. I need one for my guest room if I can find it. And Lois is like, oh, well, I saw several over there. So you probably have a good chance. So they head over there. And Ron Stiller comes up to Lois and gives her some lemonade And she's like, oh, that was very considerate of you. Like definitely some tension of the sexual nature between the two, right? Lois has a whole husband. Ron is single and ready to mingle. So that's a problem for her. Clearly not a problem for him. So we then go to where Jess and Seth are and they're looking at a bureau or a set, a dresser, also a small dresser, in other words. And Jessica's like, I well, it's the right size." And Seth is like, "It is in terrible condition. They should be ashamed to be selling this stuff." <laughs> and so he's like, "Oh, I guess beauty's in the eye of the beholder," because like that's a mess. <laughs> so out of nowhere, this voice comes from the ground and says. Hey Jessica, I can, you know, that can be repaired. I can give you something to to strip it. And, like the look on Jessica's face as she looks over to where the voice is coming from and it's Stanley and he is under a table. Okay, on the ground. Okay? And is saying this from under it. She's like, "What?" <laughs> and so Seth is just like oh, are you looking for bargains under there too? (laughs) Which the answer is actually yes, because Stanley's like, well, you know, I like to fix fixer upper type things. And, you know, I have a solution that'll strip that down. So, and Jessica's like, well, I don't, mm, I don't know, $50. And like, do you think there's any value in this? And so Stanley's like, yeah, a few applications of my special formula and we'll have it looking like an antique. It's not going to look like a Chippendale, which is a high value item. Okay. Or brand name, I'll say brand name, style of furniture. And she's like, okay. He's like, well, you know, $50 is a steal. Don't tell Bud that and you know what if you don't get it I will this is a definitely a great piece so Jessica is like you know what I'm gonna get it and let me just find Bud so I can give him the money so then we hear some shouting and apparently it is Carl who is the chief of the fire department and Bud who is a volunteer firefighter we have no idea what they're doing regular jobs are because it's volunteer. So it's not paid. So we assume they have a regular job on the days that they're not at the station. We don't know what that consists of. I think we only know one, Ron. We eventually find out what Ron Stiller's daytime job is, but the rest of them, we don't know what these people do for real. And so they're arguing And Bud is like, you knew that the printing company would make money, was making money when you bought my half, okay? So they were half and half partners and Carl bought Bud out. And after he bought Bud out, the printing company started making a profit. I'm assuming again, because I'm guessing they didn't get, they didn't purchase the business if it wasn't making money to begin with. And so Carl is like, no, we're making money because I bought your half and I gave you a good price for it. So Bud's pissed because he's like, you had customers lined up just waiting to buy me out and waiting to help them uh, after you bought me out. And Carl was like, no, no, no. You lost those customers because of your penny pinching ways." and they all were running back once you left, okay? So Lois comes up and she's like, "Listen, honey. He gave a, he paid us what we asked for. Like, why are you mad? You you need to be mad at yourself." She don't say this, but this is the facts. He need to be mad at himself. Okay? Cuz I promise you he thought he was getting over on Carl. Okay? That's why he whatever price he he gave the fact that Carl was, willing, Carl was willing to pay it without a fuss, hopefully Carl put up a little bit of a fuss so it didn't seem suspicious that he wanted to purchase buy him out. But he bought you out. And now you find out it's successful and you feel bamboozled when the fact is, and I'm sure Carl is right, honestly, is you had a nasty attitude People did not want to deal with you. So they took their business elsewhere. And then once you were gone, they obviously went back to Carl because Carl wasn't the problem. You were. So Bud is all up in arms because Lois said this in front of Carl. And he's like, why are you always taking a side against me? I thought a wife was supposed to stand behind her husband And they then walk off together. I'm like, girl, what did you get yourself into with this one? Now, they're supposed to be the same age. I'm just going to put that out there. Okay. They're supposed to be the same age. Okay. Okay. How do we know this? A little bit of a spoiler. We find out that they met in high school. Okay. In high school, because she's like, you know, when we were in high school together, you know, he was a different person. I'm like, "Mm, well, that that was high school. He is a, he is 58. (laughs) Now she looked like she's 42. Okay. She could pass for 35, but I would believe 42 looking 35. But, and I think it's a blonde hair. So I'm trying to discount that it's blonde because sometimes... Uh, Women who have that blonde color hair, that color of blonde, it looks kind of gray, so they may seem older than they are. So I'm trying to take account of that. And I would say maybe she's 35 to 42. He's a hot 58, like a hot 58. Like that's not premature graying, okay? That's a natural graying, okay? He is 58. I don't know how old these actors are but just by visuals, okay? But they're supposed to have been in high school together. I don't know, either she takes better care of herself than he does, which is believable, or they out here just making up stories and just found actors to for these roles, but the writers wrote it with a different set of people in mind. But anyway, so... The mayor then calls everyone's attention to the front and they do a drill. Well, the volunteer firefighters do a drill. They ring the bell and they show them, you know, putting on their equipment and getting in the truck and whatever. So the next scene, we're at Owens Furniture Store and the Owens in Owens is Fred Owens is the owner. And Fred is there trying to sell a mattress. Well, actually, it's a full bedroom set with a mattress to what appears to be a newlywed couple. And he's talking about a discount of $30. We have no idea what this bedroom set costs, but he's going to take $30 off the cost of the mattress, okay? Then Jessica walks in. He tells him, well, sit down and think about it. He goes, And Jessica is like, oh, I'm here about, I'm not here to buy furniture or to sell furniture. I am here to talk to you about the rummage sale yesterday. And Fred is like, oh, the mayor already told me that we made $2,600 and 13 cents. And Jessica says, well, actually it was $2,650 and 13 cents because I bought a bureau for $50, but... Bud left before I could pay him and since you're the treasurer for the organization I came to pay you so Fred is like oh that's great because honestly she could have just had it for free they would not have known at all thank God for honest people named Jessica Fletcher okay <laughs> so he's like oh my goodness thank you because you really could have scanned us and we would have never known but I'm trying to sell this God awful bedroom set that I got stuck with last year to this couple over here. I'm I'm trying to close this deal. You can go and give the check to Stanley and he'll get you a receipt and he'll set you up. So Jessica goes to the office and Stanley waves her in. He's on the phone with a bill collector, clearly. And he's like, I showed Fred the bill. He's the one who writes the checks. He has just ignored it, unfortunately, but I promise that I'll make sure that he pays it. Yes, we'll do it by hand delivery tomorrow morning. Okay, we'll see you then. Hangs up the phone. Jessica gives him the $50 check and Stanley's like, oh, I'll prepare a receipt for you. So Jessica picks up a framed picture of a woman and we learn that that is Stanley's fiance, Marjorie. And Jessica is like, oh, yes, like, have you guys set a date yet? And Stanley says, as soon as I get time off from here, but it's not looking like that's going to be anytime soon. Now, remember this, because we're going to discuss that at the end of this episode, okay? His inability to take a vacation, okay? Okay. So the next scene, we're at Jessica's house with Jessica and Seth. Jessica is fighting a losing battle with her new bureau and Seth goes to help her open this drawer and he's able to unwedge it. And he says, if you put your socks in here, you will never get them out. And she's like, no, it's, there's something wedged back here. That's why this, the the drawer was sticking. And so she pulls it out and it is what? A letter hence the title dead letter and it's addressed to bud frixie and seth notices that it was postmarked in boston massachusetts and it was postmarked six months ago and it has no return address so he's like what you gonna do with it and jessica's like oh well it's pretty late mind you it's light outside but i think like she may mean like, oh, it's dinner time. So like, you know, people could be eating dinner. I don't want to be rude. But she was like, you know what? I'll just take it over to Bud now. So the next scene, we're at the Frixie house. And Bud is like, I know that the mail service is bad, but I didn't know it was rotten. <laughs> and she's like, I, you know, I don't know how it ended up in the drawer. I don't know. I don't know whose bureau it was or anything, but, you know, here's your letter. I And he's like, thank you. He then proceeds to open it in front of her and starts to read it. And the look on his face is of hurt. He definitely looks upset and saddened by it and shocked as well. And Jessica sees this and she's like, oh my goodness, I hope it's not bad news, you know, and he's like, no, it, no, it's, it's fine. It's nothing I can't handle. Um, but I, I do need to get some stuff together. So, you know, thank you again, Jessica. He like, is kind of like in a daze and he walks back in the house and Jessica's like, uh, yikes, what did I do? And it's not her fault. That's what any normal person would have done. They would have done one of two things. Either gone over to his house, if you knew the person, go over to their house and take them the letter. Or two, you would put it in the mail, put it in the regular mail. It had postage on it. Postage was paid. It had an address where it was going to. You just drop it in the mailbox and keep it pushing. You're done. You're done. So the next scene, we're at the gas station. And Lois is trying to put gas in her car. And she's like, oh, I can't figure this out. Now, she has her own car. And she lives in Cabot Cove, which doesn't appear to have full service gas stations. Now, I know there are some states where it's illegal to pump your own gas, which, great. But... (laughs) that does not appear to be a, the situation here. So I don't understand why she cannot pump her own gas. Like she cannot seem to figure out the how the shape of the nozzle works with her actual gas cap and fuel tank. Okay, she just she she got it all sideways and everything and so Ron comes and tilts her hand the correct way so that the nozzle is straight so that the gas can flow through it. And she's like, oh, thank you, Ron. Like, Bud says that I don't know how to do, I'm so clumsy, I don't know how to do stuff, and I'm not good for anything. And I'm like, one, that's sad. That is very sad that the man you love is, and honestly, Honestly, you look too good for him. Just just on the surface, you look like you could do better. It looks like you keep yourself together. You know what I mean? Like you, you do your hair, you got your curls popping. Back when people weren't, you know, were blowing out their hair, you had your natural curls situated. You know, wear a little off the shoulder thing, not showing too much cleavage, but showing just enough. You know what I mean? Keeping it cute. And still age appropriate. Showing some skin, but still age appropriate. I wasn't like, girl, you are too old for that. Keeping yourself together. And this man just don't even care. And he just disrespectful to you. That's terrible. Because you love him so much that you are sticking it out. So Ron is like, um, he needs to get like his his eyes checked or whatever, whatever he says about him. Like he needs to get his life together. And what do we see? We see... Bud in his car across the street with binoculars, straight up binoculars. Okay, that's not suspicious. There's not other people on the street who are gonna see you. Everybody knows these people. It's a small town. Every resident knows these people. And you're gonna, (laughs) binoculars? Just whole window open. Just whole window open, binoculars past the door. Okay, so they're... (laughs) Half of the binoculars are outside of the car. So he sees this, that they're chit-chatting at this point while the the tank is being filled up. And I guess Ron puts the nozzle back and Lois is getting ready to leave. But they're they're still chit-chatting, right? So Bud gets pissed after seeing this and he read the letter. And we're going to find out what's in the letter and triggered all of this. So he storms up to them and he like grabs Lois by the shoulders, like spins her around and is like, get in the car and go home. She is shocked because she did not see him walking up there for one. So this just came out of the blue. And it's just like, she's, so she, he's like, shaking her basically she gets in the car because she's trying to be like what what's going on like where'd you even come from what are you talking about like what are you doing like i'm just trying to get some gas like i don't understand he's like get in the car and go home so she gets in the car and now bud is fussing with ron tell him to stay away from my wife what are you doing she's married whatever And so Lois gets back out of the car and she's like, bud, what is wrong with you? What are you doing? Ron didn't do anything, right? And he then again grabs her by her shoulders. Well, her arms, her upper arms. And it's like, I told you to get in the car and go home. And like basically shoves her into the car. Thankfully, the door was open. She gets in the car. She's completely freaked out and terrified. She drives off. I don't blame her. Personally, I would not have gotten out that car to explain anything. Obviously, your husband is crazed at this point and dangerous. And I'm sorry to Ron that he has to deal with this, but you're a man, he's a man, okay? He clearly grabbed her up and shoved her in the car at, at this last point, okay? We, we can't fight. Like, we, we cannot fight like you are a stronger person period than i am. We can't fight, okay? This is clearly beyond me coming up to you and like rubbing your shoulder or rubbing your back like sweetheart, come on. No, let's just let's just go home and talk this out. It's way past that. Once he grabbed her arms like that the first time, there, there was no talking to that man. There was something wrong with him, okay? He might've been drunk too. I don't know. He was, he was angry beyond words. Okay. I would have been shook the first time. I'm like, you ain't going to be out here just shaking me by my arms and think that I'm going to, no, I'm getting that car. I'm driving home. I'm packing my stuff, probably picking up a baseball bat or a golf club or something to protect myself in case you get home while I'm still packing up because this ain't going to work out. I'm going to my mother's house. Now she had a sister in Boston. That's where I'm, I'm taking this car that's now full of gas that I don't know if she paid for, but it's full of gas. Cabot Cove would be in my dust. I would be at my sister's house in Boston so quickly, like from the gas station to Boston, because what we're not gonna do is this, because if you're willing to do this in public, God knows what's gonna happen when you get home. God knows. So who's not going to be there when you get there? Me. And if I am, Mort Metzger and Floyd are going to be there too. Hands on weapons. Because this is a dangerous situation. This person, Bud, was in a dangerous mode right now. Now, it doesn't appear that... It, obviously, he was emotionally abusive before, like throughout this marriage. clearly. If she's at the point where she's repeating what he says about her being clumsy and not good for anything, he has gotten in her head to that point. So she is mentally and emotionally abused, period. Now, I'm doubting that it had gotten physical before. And this seems like she was terrified. She tells Jessica that she was terrified of this level of jealousy and how he reacted in his rage. So that tells me that he's never put his hands on her before. Most likely. Most likely. So yeah, I'm like, I wouldn't have... He would never have seen me again. Like, he would have just got papers in certified mail. <laughs> like, FedEx was a thing then. He would have got it FedEx. Okay? And you got to sign for it. Okay? There you go. Because no, this is... You're going to do this in public? Oh, oh, no, no. Then I can't, no, no, no. Because I'm I'm scared what's going to happen at home. And no, mm-mm, no. So Ron and Bud are, get to tussling because Bud grabs Ron and Ron twirls him around and throws him up against the tire rack and is like, you're... And your temper is going to get you killed. And if you grab me like that again, I'll be the one doing it. And the look in Ron's eyes told me he meant that. Because clearly he cares about Lois. And after seeing right in front of his eyes how Bud manhandled her twice, okay, and this is, t- listen, not for nothing. Ron, you should have beat the brakes off of Bud. I'm just saying you saw what he did to his wife. You would have been well within your rights. Don't do this in real life, but well within your rights to have punched him in the face or the throat, preferably the throat, because then he can't say nothing else to you. But or anything disrespectful to his wife for some time. So I would have said a throat punch would have made me feel better. Because that's just, no, that, that's not okay. So Bud, who has to be drunk or something, drunk and crazy, because he's like, if you don't stay away from my wife, I'll be the one doing the killing. Sir, you're, you're a bad Body, fifty-eight year old. Okay, you are not in anybody's good shape. Okay, Ron is clearly thirty-eight years old. Okay, like your wife. Okay, because <laughs> clear if they met in high school, that means that Bud had to be teaching the class because <laughs> that ain't, the ages ain't aging. It's not calculated. Okay, but if you think that Ron could not beat you into next century without really even breaking a sweat, you're delusional, okay? You're delusional. But Bud scampers off to his car and leaves. So the next scene, we're in the mayor's office with the mayor, Mort, Seth, and Jessica. And the mayor is like, well, we have to discuss something very important. We have to pick the next fire chief. And so Jessica is like, "Um, I think Carl is doing an amazing job. And Seth and Mort agree. So the mayor's like, listen, 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 Linda, listen. Okay. He's like, I want Carl to stay as well. But he has this crazy idea that he needs to devote more time to his family. You know what, but thankfully not all of us are selfish like that. The eye roll from Seth and from Mort, okay, they, their eyes paused in the sky. They were calling on the Almighty for strength to, to get through the rest of this meeting, okay? That is what, it wasn't even a full eye roll. They just rolled their eyes up to Jesus because they needed help. Because like no ordinary strength was going to get them through the rest of this conversation. So anyway, so Jessica is like, okay, do you have any ideas, any suggestions? And the mayor's like, um, well, uh, actually, and Seth knows where this is going. He's like, no, Sam, no, you're already spreading yourself too thin with this one job. Because you know that's what he was trying to build, fix his mouth to say. It should be me. No, sir. No. So Mort says, what about Adele? She taught fire training in the Marines. Because as we know, Adele was in the Marines. And I, I, I hate that we never met her. You know, like they never... She was just, she wasn't even a voice on the phone. Like she wasn't even a voice on the phone, okay? They didn't even hire somebody to be on the other side of the phone, okay? But she, she was a trained Marine. And there was some other stuff that she did that was very typically masculine. And what I love about this is that you have Mort. Right? He's the sheriff. He was an NYPD detective and all of this. And there's no he's not hyper masculine. He's not and he's just a regular guy. And he is married to the love of his life, okay, who is a woman who has credentials, okay, in masculine fields. And he does not, at any point, seem to feel less than when he talks about what his wife has accomplished. He is proud to tell people about it. He says it matter-of-factly, like, of course, she taught fire services in the Marines. She was a Marine. She did this. She did that. She did this. And... I love it that he his masculinity isn't damaged, isn't affected negatively by his wife, who has succeeded in masculine activities, typically, because obviously there are women Marines um, and women in other fields that she was part of. So I don't know. I, I love how they put that in there. Like he he will quickly tell you about her credentials and not even second guess that this may to some ignorant person seem like he's less than because his wife is able to do these things successfully. But anyway, back to, <laughs> to this. So he then says, so the mayor's like, well, I don't know. Seth is like, I don't think that's a good idea. Jessica says, why isn't it a good idea? I think having a woman as our chief of the firefighting chief is amazing. And so Mort was like, oh, wait a second. I withdraw my nomination. I don't want her sitting in a firehouse all day pay- playing peenuckle, sir. You be in there playing poker with him too. So like, you just don't want to be Playing poker with your wife (laughs) because you know she out here winning. So I understand. I understand. He's like, wait, when I get a chance, I hang out with the firefighters. And now if she the chief, she going to be there too. We need our separate lives. We need our separate lives. (laughs) So Seth is like, oh, that's a good point. (laughs) Like, Seth, don't try to clean it up. Do not try to clean it up. And at this point, they hear the fire alarm go off. So we have a siren that goes off to alert the volunteer firefighters to go to the fire station to suit up because there's a fire. Here in Cabot Cove, they have a bell. So somebody notified dispatch. Dispatch rings the bell. And I think also may call the firefighters who are not in the house for additional support. In the firehouse, I mean, like they could be at their actual houses, but calling them in for support. So we then see where the fire is at. It's Fred Owens' furniture store. It is ablaze, but it doesn't seem like a lot of damage on the outside and they're able to put the fire out relatively quickly. And Jessica's like, isn't it odd that Fred is not on the scene here? And they're like, yeah, that is, that is odd. We find out later he was actually out of town. So this seems suspicious, but there is a valid explanation that we can't really prove, but it's an explanation, I guess. So they're putting the the smaller fires out inside. They go inside. These are the firefighters. And Ron... He finds Bud dead on the floor, him and Carl. So Bud finds, not Bud, Ron finds a body. He calls Carl over because Carl is the chief. They roll the person over and they both see that it is Bud Frixie. Someone, I think it's Ron, then goes to the door and calls Seth in saying, Doc, I need you in here. I need you in here. He goes in, he's like, no, he's long gone. Like he is, there's no reviving him at this point. And Jessica is like, what was he doing in here? And the mayor is like, well, when I spoke with the, dis- the dispatcher, she said that he, Bud, is the one who called in the alarm. So Ron then comes in, he's like, this is his fire extinguisher. I'm guessing it had their names on them. And because I'm like, all fire extinguishers look the same. So it must have like some either symbol, some identifying thing on it, or his name just in black marker on it. So Mort says, yeah, and his car was outside. So Mort puts two and two together and says, he must have seen the flames, called it in, and then came in and tried to put the fire out when he, I guess, succumbed to smoke inhalation or something to that effect. But obviously an autopsy would be able to tell them better. So the mayor goes on and on about how he, how Bud is a hero. Okay. Now, granted he did run into a burning building and granted He is a volunteer firefighter. So he is choosing on his own to be the one who runs into burning buildings. So that, yes, that, yes, okay? But after he grabbed his wife up like that, no, no, I have no respect for him, okay? Thank you for trying to save that furniture store, okay, sir, but abuse ain't cute. It's not okay. It's not like, oh well, he tried to save the furniture store. But he grabbed up his wife, and God knows what where that could have gone. So the next scene, we're at the sheriff's office, and Mort is telling Floyd about what the mayor said. And he's like, the mayor wants to erect a statue of him. Not of the mayor, okay, of Bud, next to the firehouse. And he wants to rededicate the new. Fire engine and name it after Bud, okay? And <laughs> more is like, "That's a lot of honor to go to this man, and I don't know if that's deserved." So, as they're talking, uh, Connie Kowalski um comes in, and as Uh, Mort is saying oh but that's a terrible way to die you know spontaneous combustion and Connie says no it was arson and he's like who are you (laughs) so Connie introduces herself she's like um, that she's from mutual fidelity insurance and um, Mort is like I already got a piece of the rock thank you and she's like no I'm an insurance investigator, okay, and the fact he's like, well, okay, fine. Why do you think it's arson? And she's like, it's always arson. You know, I sent some samples to my lab in Boston, including some seat covers or seat cushions that appear to have a foreign substance on them. And he's like, you took evidence from a scene. She was like, ones that you overlooked and that all the records in the office were burned. So clearly this was arson to destroy the records and possibly the property too, so that they could get an insurance settlement, close the building out and walk away from a failing business. Now, before we go on, I just wanna say this. Now, this is an episode that I do like, but what I don't like, and this is the same exact thing that they did and keep the home fries burning with the woman, the investigator from the health department. Now she came in on disrespect. Like that was the level she came in on. And that's the same level that Connie came in on. Now I understand that you are a woman in this male dominated area, Okay, as an investigator for an insurance company, as an investigator for the health department, okay, you have clawed your way up there, had to be better than everyone else to get to where you are. I get that and I appreciate that as a woman, okay, and as a woman of color, even more so, right? But the fact that it's not even being assertive, it's being disrespectful, And that's what gets me that they have this, I don't know if they had an issue with the different generations because Jessica is a working woman, right? She is in a male heavy field, specifically murder mystery novels is extremely male heavy then and now, to be honest, but they, she's able to code switch, right? She's able to navigate whether it's a detective who respects the research and information and experience and knowledge that she has and wants to use that to their benefit, or if they're standoffish, if they're misogynist, if they're um, sexist, whatever, right? She is able to navigate that without being nasty, without being disrespectful, without um, being overbearing, you know what I mean like there's a way to do it nor is she unless it calls for this. she doesn't take she doesn't play demure or stupid or anything like that unless she needs to do that for a moment to get information, right? But for the most part, They have written her, Jessica, in such a way that she is able to navigate in all different circles, right? But they write these other women, right, these other professional women as being, for lack of a better word, bitches, okay, That they come in, they're nasty, they're disrespectful, they think they know, they don't really know, and it really takes away from the fact that they had to claw their way up to that position, okay, that they had to prove themselves to get to that position. And I understand that you may come in with um, chips on your shoulder and assume that you're going to be discounted because you're a woman. I get that, I get that, I get that. But that doesn't make, make it okay to be disrespectful because that just makes you look worse because an outsider looking in is not going to, even a woman, because sometimes women are women's worst critics, right? That an outsider looking in is not going to take the step back that I'm taking in 2023 to understand that you are overcompensating and you are trying to ensure that these men know that you deserve the position you're in and that you need to be taken seriously. There is a difference between coming in with a level of confidence and assertiveness that will get that point across. And then there is being disrespectful, dismissive, that is just not okay for anyone. Because if the same way the barrister in Witness for the Prosecution, wit, no, Witness for the Defense was the Murder She Wrote episode, Witness for the Prosecution was the Agatha Christie book and movie. Okay. So witness for the defense, where we had uh, attorney, Barrister Quayle, I think that was his last name, Quayle, and how dismissive he was, right? That didn't gain him any favors. He was trash for that. Whatever, I, I did a whole review about that. But the same way that was unacceptable, to an audience member for him to do that is the same way that it's inappropriate for them to write these characters. Clearly men wrote these characters, okay? But I don't understand how these same men, but you know what? Angela Lansbury, I'm sure had some say so in how her character was created that uh, Connie Kowalski, And I forget the name of the woman from Keep the Home Fries Burning. They didn't have that same autonomy to craft the characters as being confident, assertive women and not disrespectful. Like aggressive is not necessarily a bad word, but they were definitely disrespectful. And that was just disgusting to me. And that really took away from this episode. Personally, it took away from this episode. I enjoy the actress who plays Connie Kowalski. I believe we see her in future episodes. This, I think this is her first Murder, She Wrote episode, but I think we see her further down the line a few times. But as an actress, she's great. She played the hell out of this role. But it's unfair to have this character who you have written to be hated. And it's like, if she was a man, would she have been this aggressive and nasty to Sheriff Metzger for no reason? Like he wasn't once she said, I'm an investigator for mutual fidelity, you know, looking into this, okay, had she said the same thing up till, you know, introduced herself I believe this is arson. I've worked a lot of these cases. I've investigated a lot of these cases. This has a lot of the markings of an arson for insurance fraud purposes. I would really like to work with you to investigate this. Or if you're more comfortable, I can do my investigation and let you know when I come to a conclusion. Um or however you want to work it. We can do this together or we can do this separate. I don't want to step on any toes, but I have a job to do, okay? The fact that she went straight there and was taking evidence and did not even announce her presence to local law enforcement, that's not how that works. That is not how any of this works. It's not. And to do that, to be written in such a way that you have this woman just coming in, like kicking in doors and setting things on fire. Just literally kicking in doors, setting things on fire and with the scorched earth policy as opposed to having a conversation with law enforcement. Because the fact is if another law enforcement officer, let's say state police, needed to go into an area covered by county police. The state police would talk to the county police to let them know, we're in your area. This is what we're doing. Please don't come and arrest our people, okay? We're in your backyard right now. That's how you do it in real life. So an investigator would have the common decency to go to law enforcement to tell them, hey, I need to investigate this crime scene that you are also investigating. So I would like to do A, B, C, and D. Can we meet at the scene at this time So that I can collect evidence and we can both be on the same page. Because that's the decent thing, not even the decent thing, that's what you're supposed to do. Okay. Because in real life, she would have been arrested for tampering with evidence. Okay. In real actual life, because you cannot go to a crime scene. I don't care what credentials you have. Okay. Unless you're the, unless you're feds in the state. Okay. You can't, as an insurance investigator for a private company, go into an active crime scene, okay, okay, and take evidence out of it and not expect to, at very least, be detained until they can, A, retrieve the evidence, okay, because, Any prosecutor who hears this is gonna ask for there to be consequences on you. You better hope that you have your job at the end of the day, because if a prosecutor finds out that you have messed with their evidence, that's going to affect the final case because there's a dead body in there. If it's murder, even if it's arson, that is a high level criminal offense. Arson that results in murder, arson used to cover up a murder, Any of those options there, okay? Or if someone committed an arson and the firefighter dies, that's a civil suit that in addition to the criminal suit. So you're out here messing with evidence like that. I'm even more pissed off now that I'm really thinking about how she just went to a crime scene and removed evidence and then had the nerve to be disrespectful and have an attitude with the sheriff, honestly and truly, he should have been like, oh, so you're admitting in front of me, a witness and another law enforcement officer that you went and you removed evidence from an active crime scene. Okay, um, you know that we take things in stages, right? So you're talking about I overlooked it. It's still an active crime scene, ma'am. Put your hands behind your back. You're under arrest. That's what should have happened, honestly and truly. And she just kept getting Mort Metzger's goat. And it it wasn't necessary. The disrespect was disgusting. It wasn't, oh, I'm a strong woman that fought my way up to this position. That all goes to the wayside when you're disrespectful to people and nasty to people. That, that's it, just like Bud lost all respect when he grabbed up his wife, period, and especially in public, okay? So he out here trying to save the day or whatnot, don't nobody care about that when you find out that he out here mentally and emotionally abusing his wife and then now moving over to a physical situation. Clearly this touched a nerve, <laughs> Because there wasn't a need for her to be so disrespectful. There wasn't. And it was just so frustrating to see this. Thankfully, she is only here, appears a few times throughout the episode. But just, as they say, grinds my gears. So anyway, okay. (laughs) So they then go to the scene. So it's Fred, the owner, Connie, and Mort. And so Connie comes in and she, she's like, who are you? Don't touch that. As if you haven't come and destroyed evidence, the trail of evidence already. Okay. The chain of evidence destroyed. So I don't know. Okay. No, we already discussed this. We already discussed this. We already discussed this. Okay. Anyway, so Connie is going on and on about like, oh, well it, it started there and there by gasoline or kerosene. I'll know in a few hours, you know, and I'm sure you don't know anything about this, but uh, where were you last night? And Fred is like, who are you? And what what is going on? So Mort steps in, says all this stuff, and is like, he's a stand-up citizen, whatever, whatever. But yeah, where were you last night? And now Fred is humming Him and Han and mumbling. Okay. But basically he's like, I was out of town for a business meeting and about halfway. And so they're like, do you have any proof of this? And he's like, no. Um, well halfway there, I realized that I left my briefcase. So I turned around and came back. And so Connie is like, well, you recently doubled your insurance. So Fred is like, yeah, because your company harassed me and hounded me to death with calls and letters talking about make change, adjust for inflation, adjust for inflation. So finally, I got sick of it and just gave in and increased my insurance. Now, she immediately changed her tune at that point. I don't know if it was because I, I don't know. Like, I don't know, she thought that she had one up and he was like, no, it's actually your company's fault. I'm sure she knows that they harass people into increasing their insurance and changing their plans so they're spending more money that the insurance company can hold onto that when something happens, you know, they don't have to pay out. Because for this, if he committed arson, the insurance company don't have to pay out. Now, would they have to pay... Um, Bud's family, that's not the type of law I work in. So I do not know, but I'm so sure that Bud's family would sue. And since, well, actually, I don't even know if the insurance premium was up to date. That's never discussed. And we're going to, we're going to get into that later, but yeah, her tone changed completely. Okay. And she leaves. So the next scene, we're back at Jessica's house and Jessica and Seth are talking. And Seth says, sometimes I believe that you won't be satisfied until you can prove every person in the cemetery was a victim of foul play. And Jessica pays him dust. And she's like, don't you think it's a little too coincidental that Bud died the, day that, the same day I gave him that dead letter? And Seth is like, the fact is that he likely saw the fire and went in to help. And, you know, people every day get letters that are late. And that doesn't mean that they're going to end up dead. And she's like, oh, you know, you're right. But like, you know, I wonder who the Bureau came from, who it belonged to. So fast forward, she calls whoever she needs to call and finds out that it was Agnes. Now, Agnes worked for the post office, so the U.S. Postal Service. And she's out in a gazebo somewhere in town painting a man, an old man (laughs) of the sea, with a pipe, okay? Now, I don't know if she painted that picture or who did, but they did a very good job, okay? Just... It was quality. Anyway, so we find out from Agnes that it was her bureau. She was almost too ashamed to, to give it to them to sell because it was in such bad condition. But she did anyway. So I'm like, okay, girl. So you didn't feel that bad. So Jessica tells her, well, I found a letter wedged in the drawer. And she's like, oh, that's why it wouldn't close properly. And she says, it was addressed to Bud Frixie. Do you remember that? And she says, yeah, I almost forgot. Lois wrote that letter while she was visiting her sister in Boston. And the weird thing is, as soon as it arrived, she called and asked, said that she had second thoughts and she asked me to tear it up. And Jessica says, but you couldn't. And Agnes says, no, there's post office regulations, but there's nothing in those regulations that say that I can't put it I couldn't put it in my personal dead letter office so the next scene we're at the Frixie house and Jessica is speaking with Lois and Lois is like well I thought Agnes destroyed that letter months ago I had gotten to a point where I made a decision my marriage was falling apart and I I was I came to a determination and I couldn't look at but I couldn't even telephone him. So I figured that a letter would be my best option to tell him how I feel. Side note, I agree. And the reason I agree, now it will be an email, okay? Not a text, cause that, that's, y'all married, okay? But in order to get out everything that you want to say without being interrupted, that's the way to go. Because in person, Well, one, seeing how he reacted now, good thing she didn't tell him in person because I I fear what could have happened. But telling someone over the phone, they can interrupt you, they can hang up on you if, and you don't get everything out. But in a letter, whether they finish reading it or not, that's on them. But you have expressed yourself fully. You have um, put everything that, you needed to say in that letter and it's out of your mind and on the paper. So I agree that that was the best way to go under these circumstances. So she says that in the letter she told Bud that she didn't love him anymore and that there was another man. And Jessica's like, "Oh, wow. Okay. Um yikes." So, and Lois starts to describe him, his characteristics, not his physical appearance. And she says everything that Bud wasn't, which should have been a clue. And so just, she's Lois says, well, at least he never read it. Now he's dead, so it don't really matter, right? He can't come after you now. But Jessica's like, oh, but, I didn't know what it said. So I gave him the letter because I found it and it was addressed to him. So I gave it to him. I didn't know. And so Lois is like, "Uh, you, you gave it to him? Did he read it? She was like, yeah, he opened it and he read it. And I saw it. I didn't see the letter, but I saw him read it. And he seemed upset. And she was like, oh, that is why he was in such a jealous rage at the gas station. And so Jessica's apologetic and... Lois is like, it's not your fault at all. It is not your fault. Please, please don't feel bad because it's not her fault. But by nature, because of the consequences that have come from this, as a a human being, you feel bad. So your go-to would be to apologize. But thankfully, Lois is mature enough to understand and not blame Jessica because Jessica is not at fault at all. OK, and thankfully, Lois realizes that immediately, like she doesn't need to be told. She doesn't need some time to cool off. She doesn't have to come back around to it. She's like, Jessica, it's not your fault. It is not your fault. You know, I, I wrote the letter. I mailed it. it. It happens. So the next scene, we're at the no. So Jessica says, well, if he never told you about the letter and she's like, he didn't. Jessica's like, well, then where is it? So the next scene, we're now at the sheriff's office and Mort is like, yeah, I found it in his pocket. But, you know, we can't keep the information in the letter quiet. And Jessica's like, why? Why can't we? And both Mort and Seth basically said, well, we have to, the other man could have, could be the murderer. And Jessica is like, what, there's something y'all are not telling me because remember, she assumes that Bud died from smoke inhalation. And so Seth is like, the autopsy came back and Bud was killed by a severe blow to the back of his head. And also the letter leads us to believe that Lois's boyfriend was a volunteer firefighter. So the next scene, we're at the firehouse and No, we're at the Frisky house. We're at the Frisky (laughs) Lois's house. And Lois refuses to tell Mort or Jessica the name of the other man. And Jessica says, well, maybe your friend was upset that you went back to your husband. And Lois is like, that's possible. And Jessica moves forward with that idea and says, you know, maybe he thought that um, things would be better and you would come back to him if Bud was out of the picture. And she says, no, 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 he's not that type of person. Bud is a violent person. He would hurt the friend, but the friend, he he's peaceful. He's all of this. He would never use violence against anyone. And Mort says, oh, that's great because your husband wasn't hit by Winnie the Pooh one whack on the head and his immortal soul went straight through the pearly gates so of course lois starts to cry and jessica looks at mort he's like what did i say now mort that's disrespectful (laughs) That's, that's terrible you can't say that so anyway they return back to jessica and mort return to the sheriff's office and Connie is sitting at his desk and she's like, oh, it's about time you got here. It must be so easy being a sheriff of a small town. You, it gives you a lot of time to goof off. This is what I mean. Why are you, A, being disrespectful, and B, he's already been working. He's been investigating. How about you have a conversation with Floyd? Maybe you not be a terrible person and actually be someone... They would want to give information to you could have been working with him. You could have been in there speaking, you know, when he spoke with Lois Frixie or something like that. But no, you have to be nasty and disrespectful. Like that's your brand right now. So Jessica says, oh, you know, we haven't been formally introduced. I'm Jessica Fletcher. And Connie is like, oh, I've heard so much about you, Jessica, Excuse me, this woman is your elder and you don't even say Mrs. Fletcher. You don't say that, you call her Jessica. The actual nerve, she is not your contemporary that you can, and you've never met her before. So you're not a friend of hers. You're not someone that is a family member. Okay, you're a stranger in this semi-professional setting. You're in your professional Hat at this point, right? You're, at, you're acting as an investigator on behalf of your company. You are a professional right now. This isn't your hey, girl. Hey, okay. You're calling Jessica instead of Mrs. Fletcher, girl. The disrespect. Like, do you not have any home training on how you should address people in a a professional setting and b someone who's older than you, girl? Come on now, you too old for that. Like, who wrote this? How old are the people who wrote this? That's disrespectful. Did they have it like, oh, this younger generation of women, they're professionals and everything, but they're just wild and crazy and disrespectful? Is that what they were alluding to? Like the generational divide about middle age, well, younger middle age working professional women? Cause this seems like a commentary on that based on the previous one. And that woman was a bit, was closer to Jessica's age. And then in this one where this woman's probably, you know, could be Jessica's younger sister, but not like her daughter or something like that. So I was just thrown off and just even more upset when she just called Jessica by her first name. And you have never met this woman before a day in your life. So anyway, so Jessica is like, well, I I was told that you were looking for evidence of arson to which Connie says wrong, I found it. That's not an appropriate response to what Jessica said. She's not wrong. The response is I was, but I found it, not wrong. That's what I mean, Just, just disrespectful for no reason to everybody, to everybody, So then Connie says that the lab test came back and there was benzene on the seat cushions and pillows that she sent for testing. And Jessica says, oh, well, it seems like you guys are looking for the same person. To which Connie says, wrong again, arsonists don't kill. When I tell you that I I would like to meet the person who wrote this character, okay, okay, they, they probably aren't with us anymore. But if they are, someone needs to just shake them one good time. Okay. Two, because we have two of these characters. And I feel like there are other characters in future episodes that are written like this. And they need to just be shake three good times. It's three good hard shakes. Because the fact that you had this woman say, arsonists don't kill and we're supposed to believe that this insurance investigator who has investigated other arsons is like and is a person a human being in this world an adult who can watch the news someone who gets a salary someone who pays taxes either voluntarily or involuntarily okay okay that you don't know that there are occasions where, as Jessica says, what about when a killer covers up their murder with fire? And Connie completely discounts this. And it's like, come on now, as if that never has happened in the history of history. Okay. And it's like, well, in this case, like the business was going down. He set the, the building on fire. And Jessica's like, that doesn't explain why there was a dead body in there. She's like, that's not my problem. Gr- okay. Okay. We just gonna move on because the level of frustration that I'm experiencing now because of the ignorance of this conversation on the part of Connie is just beyond measure. So we're gonna just keep on moving. So Connie leaves. Okay. Then Jessica says, uh, okay, wow, uh, glad she's gone. She doesn't say that, but we're all glad she's gone, at least for now. And Jessica says, well, where would we find benzene? And she remembers and says, didn't Lois say something about Bud's jealous rage in a gas station? And Mort says, that's my case. Who, which firefighter, volunteer firefighter, Works at a gas station. And as he's about to say it, he is taken in all the air in order to say Ron Stiller. When Floyd, paying attention but not paying close enough attention, says Ron Stiller and literally snatches the wind out of Mort's sails. Okay? Just snatched it. Just straight out the air. <laughs> Just just deflates him. So the next scene, we're at the gas station with Mort and Floyd and there is this huge barrel of benzene in the front of the gas station. And I'm like, that's not safe. Okay, that is not safe. It is like right next to the the actual gas pumps and it's just, somebody could hit it with their car. Like, I feel like this is really unsafe. And so we find out from Floyd that Ron's cousin says that Ron got called to the firehouse for an important meeting. So he is not at the gas station. So what we find out earlier in the episode is that Ron's father owns the gas station. We don't ever meet his father, but his father owns the gas station and Ron runs it. So that would make sense that his cousin was also... Uh, running the gas station in conjunction with and in the stead of Ron. So the next scene, we're at the firehouse. And this important meeting is the volunteer firefighters playing poker with the mayor for actual money. Okay, so mm, that's illegal at this time, okay? Okay. And they're going back about talking about who could Lois's boyfriend be. She's attractive. I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't kick her out of bed. They didn't say that, but basically. And as they're talking, Ron is getting more and more upset and uncomfortable. And at one point he gets up to leave because he's like, y'all talking real nonsense about a woman who just lost her husband. This is getting real disrespectful. Well, it's been disrespectful. I just can't deal with this anymore. So he gets up to leave and Mort walks in and says, hey, I need to take you down to the station to ask you some questions about Bud Frixie's de- murder. And he's like, what you got to talk about me? Listen, okay, now I have had been interested and had a crush situation on Lois since high school. Now they look like they're around the same age, okay? High school but I did not kill Bud. y'all got the wrong idea, whatever, whatever. That's what I'm thinking like maybe Bud was like a teaching assistant or something like that, and he was older, and that's why she went with him because maybe he was a more um secure option than some a fellow high schooler. You know what I mean like that that's what I'm gonna guess, okay. So the next scene, we're at the sheriff's office and Jessica and Mort are talking. And Jessica's like, yeah, Ron is not my idea of a secret lover. And Mort is like, well, he had a big old thing of benzene and he had that argument with Bud about Lois. So he's looking real suspicious to me. At this point, Connie comes back in. Womp womp. Okay. Okay. She comes in with Stanley and she basically is like, It was Fred Owens. He was in financial ruin. The lights were about to be turned off. The water was about to be turned off. He ain't paying none of his bills, all of this. And Stanley is like, Well, it was nothing he couldn't handle. Okay. Because Stanley's the accountant for the furniture store. Okay. So Connie is like, No, tell him what you told me. And Stanley was like, well, there was a state audit that was coming up and Fred asked me to doctor the books and I refused. But it doesn't matter how bad his business was doing. I do not believe that he would burn down his store. So Connie says, um, so then there's a question like, well, then how did Bud end up getting killed? And Connie says, well, while Fred was burning down the furniture store, Bud comes in, finds him doing that and Fred kills him. So the next scene, we're back at Lois's residence and Jessica is knocking on the door. She wants to speak with Lois. Lois opens the door. It's like, oh, I wish you would have called, you know, and not in the, what are you doing here? But like, I would have, you know, made tea or coffee or made sure there was food in the house, something to that effect. That was the tone that I got. And then we see Carl, the chief of the firehouse, coming downstairs, buttoning his pants with his t-shirt on, right? And he's like, oh, this is not what it looks like. It's not what it looks like. Um, Because Lois was holding his shirt and he was like, I came over to pay my condolences and Lois noticed that I had a loose button on my shirt. So she agreed to, you know, she offered to tighten it up for me. Okay, it's not with he. So he takes his shirt. He's like, "Okay, have a great night," and and leaves. Now, I I don't believe that they were having a situation. Like I don't. I think it was supposed to look suspicious, but I don't believe that for a second. But I will say that he has a wife because he's like, you know, I'm a family man. Like I'm not out here cheating. I'm not down the block from my family. Okay. I'm probably scared of my wife just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. I just talk a lot of junk to the other firefighters. But I love my wife so much and my kids. I love them. <laughs> like, yeah. He's somebody. He was like, I do not get this twisted. I am not mm no. No, see, I'm even stepping down from being the chief of police so that I can spend more time with my lovely family, okay? I'm not trying to mess that up, messing with this one over here, okay? (laughs) No, 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 okay? All them guys got their eyes on her. If they will find out, that would be, uh, my life would be over, okay? No, 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 it's not that. But I'm just going to say, he got a whole wife. Why wouldn't you just notify him about the button and be like, um... You don't look like the type that would do that, but you got a whole wife. So, you know, unless he said, you know, my wife can't sew for nothing, then you would take the shirt and and help him out. But that's weird to me. I don't know if it's weird to you. If I saw somebody with a loose button, I might let them know. But I'm like, didn't you notice? But you know what? Maybe not. Maybe it was fine when he put it on and then somehow during the way it uh, unraveled a bit. And got loose. So it's possible that it happened during the day. But I, I don't think I would have been like, okay, go ahead. Take your shirt off. I'm going to fix this button. Like, okay, I'm just going to run to the bathroom upstairs real quick. Why, don't y'all have a bathroom on the first floor? L- listen, it was written to look suspicious. It was written to look suspicious. Okay. So Carl runs out, okay, with his shirt halfway on. Jessica then goes. Uh, well, Lois invites her in to sit down, and Jessica informs Lois that uh, Ron was arrested. And she's like, For what? And basically, well, he was arrested for the murder of Bud because they believe that he is the boyfriend that she was describing in the letter. And Lois is like, Ron isn't the man, and neither is Carl. And Jessica says, Yeah. The way you described him at first fit Ron, but it got more too perfect to the point where I doubt that this is a real person. And so Lois finally admits that, yes, she just created this fake person in order to get Bud's attention. But she changed her mind. She came back to repair her marriage but nothing changed and that no, nothing changed when she, from the time she got back from Boston until he got that letter and Jessica says well what changed when he got the letter and Lois says his jealousy his jealous rage terrified me and you could tell you could tell she was really shook when he came up out of nowhere and like grabbed her up like that and pushed her in the car and was like, get out of here twice. Okay. I think she got out the second time because she probably had blocked out, like just could not wrap her mind around what happened. Cause that's what I'm saying. I don't think he ever put his hands on her and she had never seen him this mad before. So she probably was just like in a state of shock that she didn't even know for safety reasons she should have left after the first situation. And that's why she got out the car because she probably was like, I can reason with him. I've never seen this before in a state of shock, but I'm sure I can just talk to him and he, you know, he'll snap out of it. And then when he grabs her up the second time and pushed her in that car, she was like, oh, okay, no, no, no. This is serious. It's scary. This is dangerous. I'm out. So she, after she saw that, she was like, oh, this has gone too far. But I just, she was like, I, this is not what I wanted. You know, I didn't want this reaction. I wasn't trying to get him to get upset. I didn't want him to beat somebody up. I didn't want to fight in the street. You know, something like that. That's not what I was looking for. There are some people out there who unfortunately will create situations like this to have um, their partner and their side piece fight because that does something for them. But that's not what Lois was trying to do because she didn't even have a side piece. Okay. She was just trying to get her husband to see her as a beautiful woman that somebody else could have, like wanted and could have if he didn't get his act together. And so Jessica was like, well, what did you want? And she's like, I, I just wanted things to go back to the way they were. And she shows her a picture of them in happier times. And Jessica has an epiphany. So the next scene, we're at Stanley's house. And there's a bunch of furniture outside drying. He's actively um, painting. I don't know if he's putting on varnish, if he's putting on the stripping solution, if he's putting on paint, but he's doing something with a brush on a piece of furniture and Jessica is like oh don't tell me you we you know refurbished all of this and he was like yeah this is my thing this is what I do and so she sees an open can like paint can shaped or basically that's what it was a paint can of benzene and you know she was like oh benzene like oh this this is a strong smell Um, is this your miracle stripping solution as in stripping of wood and paint and stuff off wood, I guess. And he's like, it's part of it. Once, you know, after the rummage sale, I mixed you up a bottle. So it's inside. We can go in there. Plus, I need to take a break anyway. Would you like I made some lemonade? Would you like some lemonade? So they head inside. So inside, Jessica sees the framed photo of Marjorie Stanley's fiance, and basically she's like, you know, um, I I really believe that I overpaid for that bureau. You said it was worth fifty dollars, and he says, well, it will be once it's refinished. And she says, ah, we were looking at it from two different perspectives, and it sounds like that's what was happening with. Fred and the business because he thought it was prospering, but you said that he owed money all over town. And Stanley is like, well, he never listened to me. I would try to tell him he just wouldn't pay the bills. And Jessica says, well, I heard, from, I heard that you were telling someone on the phone that Fred is the one who writes the checks. But when the sheriff mentioned that to Fred, he was astonished. And at this point from, I guess, the front door, so behind where Stanley is sitting, Fred and Mort walk in. And Fred says, that's what I pay you for. He's an accountant. That's what I pay you for. And Fred is, no. So then Stanley says, well, when I said that, I meant that he signs the checks. And Fred says, yes, I signed the checks, but I never think to look at who they're addressed to, I trusted you. But when I contacted the bank, they said that there were, in the account, there were checks to people in places I've never heard of. And so Mort says, you set up dummy accounts in Portland and Augusta, this is to Stanley, and paid into those accounts from Fred's account. And that's called embezzlement. And Fred says, and the audit would have shown that. Mort says, so you had to get rid of the books. And Jessica says, that's why you went to the store that night, you already, you didn't have to break in, you had a key, and you knew that Fred was gonna be out of town so you would be uninterrupted. And we have proof of it, it's this framed photo of your fiance. And it was missing from the office. And Stanley says, oh, well, that's a copy. Jessica says a copy of the frame too. It's very distinctive and it has the same nick in the corner. You remember seeing that Fred, right? He's like I absolutely do. So at this point Stanley admits to embezzling money. He says that it all started when um he got with Marjorie because She has expensive tastes. She didn't like his car. She wanted a sleek foreign model. Didn't like his house. She wanted to live, or Cabot Cove. She wanted to live in a condo in New York City. And that when he started taking the money, it just ballooned and he couldn't stop. And he's like, I'm just, I'm so sorry. And uh, Jessica is like, are you sorry about Bud Frixie? And he's like, I'm the most sorry about that. Um... He, I was just about finished. I was opening up the last thing of benzene and in the back of the store and I was almost done. I heard a crash, but I thought that was from the fire. I'm like, there must've been a back door that you could get out of from the office. Cause I'm like, why would you start at the front door and move backwards into the office unless there was an exit back there? I'm assuming there was, cause he de- definitely didn't walk through the fire. So He says he was just about finished, he heard a crash. He thought it was from the fire, like things breaking apart and stuff like that. Then he looks up and he sees Bud. And he's like, I don't know who was more shocked, him or me. And I couldn't talk my way out of this. I ended up hitting him in the back of the head with a paint can. So I guess the benzene can that he had, he hit him in the back of the head with that. It looked like he was dead, but he wasn't sure. So he was about to call for help when he saw the framed photo of Marjorie sticking out of his knapsack and was just like, maybe I could get away with this and like hung up the phone and left, but to either wake up and get out or if he was already dead, be dead or be passed out and die from smoke inhalation. I was like, you ain't even care. Like, that's terrible. But anyway, so at this point, Mort arrest him. Now, the final scene, and then we'll we'll hit the three issues that I wanted to go back to. Ron Stiller is named the new fire chief. It looks like him and... Lois are going to give it a go, okay, because she put the fire chief hat uh, helmet on him and gave him a kiss on the cheek, which was close to the lips. I'm like, okay, I'm not mad at that. I'm not mad at that, okay? They clearly are attracted to each other. Her husband is dead now, okay? So that's not, and they didn't get together or have any situation, situation before she became a widow or a widow, okay? (laughs) The road back to um, murder she spoke. Anyway, so um, (laughs) before that, they were just good friends, okay? Ron was keeping it cute. Lois was keeping it cute. Now that they both know that they're attracted to each other, they're both single, I hope it works out. I think that's cute. I think that's cute. I'm not mad about that. Not mad at all, okay? She's been through a lot. She needs a, a nice, kind, patient, man. Okay. And he needs someone who loves him for him, not for the money, not because he appears to be more secure. None of that. Okay. Just loves him for him. All right. Good for them. I'm rooting for them. Now. Okay. So let me see if I can remember the the three things. Okay. (laughs) One was definitely the embezzlement. When Stanley said that they would, him and Marjorie would pick a date for their wedding when he could get some time off from the furniture store. That was because he was embezzling, okay? He wasn't keeping two sets of books, which typically happens. He had one set of books and they were not, adding up okay so there could not be someone else attempt or Fred while he was away while Stanley was away if Fred got curious and just wanted to to look at the books right he could not afford that to happen that's why this audit triggered him needing to burn the records okay And um, honestly, like that's what he should have done, like uh, a chair or something, leave a cigarette. I, I don't know, but there had to be a better way to do this than to try to burn the whole place down. Anyway, so that is a technique that embezzlers will use. They don't take vacations because they can't chance somebody else looking at, their work and figuring out that they are embezzling, OK? And that the math ain't mathing. So my second issue is with Lois. OK? Now I understand that she made up this fictitious person to get her husband's attention in the letter. But once it came to real life, once they were asking her about who this person was. And she's out here refusing to give a name, okay? And continuing to keep the lie alive when somebody, somebody murdered her husband and they believe that it's this fictitious person that she has created, okay, So what gets me is that she could have easily pulled Jessica to the side away from Mort and been honest with her and said, listen, this is why I did this. That's never been a real person. We could have spared embarrassment. Like what's there to be embarrassed about? He's dead now. It does not matter. You're preventing... Somebody from being arrested, but you kept your mouth shut with a, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, I, I can't give his name up. And the, the worst part is now Ron had to deal with being arrested and detained because you described him because he's the person that you want to be with. You subconsciously, consciously described him, okay. And got him in trouble when you could have just been honest and said that letter was fictitious, period. Like you didn't even have to say I was trying to make him jealous. It's like we have this like, okay, like we like to keep it spicy or whatever. So I wrote that letter, you know, just to make him jealous. But like he knew it was fake. It's fake. It's fake. He knew it was fake too. But um, we, I think I made it seem too real. That's why I was like, oh, second thoughts, second thoughts. You know, (laughs) he might start getting suspicious because I'm in Boston (laughs) for a while. So um, I don't understand how it's more embarrassing to say that you wrote your husband a letter in order to get him to pay attention to you versus... Lying about it and having somebody who you care about as a fellow human being and a little bit more who got arrested and has to deal with the whatever trauma comes with being falsely accused of murder, being arrested and detained in that small town. Okay, because he's lucky that it came out who the real murderer is, because, you know, there's always like that one person who's not going to believe the truth, who is going to hold fast and believe that it was Ron Stiller who murdered Bud, okay? So yeah, like Lois, really, I can't believe you kept that lie alive after your husband was murdered when you know they were looking for a murder suspect. So that's two. Now, three is just a fun fact. So in No Laughing Murder, where George Firth played Farley Pressman, he was embezzling from Mac and Murray, right? And he did so by forging contracts and their residuals and royalties from DVD and video sales, he was rerouting to his own personal accounts and only giving them pennies on the dollar, right? So he was found out because their former, I I think he was a lawyer. I think he was a lawyer, right? Um, Found out, that they weren't getting any money from the videos. And he's like, no, like that, I helped put that together. Like this is, they should be getting money from this. So he called the the man who ended up dying, being murdered. He called the video distribution company to get the numbers, found the numbers and confronted Farley about the fact that they should have been getting thousands upon thousands of dollars and they said they weren't getting anything. And so he ends up being, he murders the other guy to keep it quiet, even though it's going to come out eventually, but like he just needed more time and was hoping that if this guy is killed or quote unquote, you know, took his own life, which he tried to set it up to look like, then... I'll be fine. Like they won't find out or I'll have enough time to pay the money back or something to that effect, something delusional. So he ends up being found out, breaking down crying and like, yes, I embezzled. It was like $300,000, which in 1985, that was a lot of money. That's a lot of money now, to be honest, in 2023, but even more so in the 80s. Now that was probably the 60s, 70s, and 80s, that all that time that he was embezzling money from every aspect of their business dealings, okay? So that was him. He murdered somebody to cover up his embezzlement. And he stayed in tight with both Mac and Murray so that his fraud could not be uncovered. He stayed their business manager. Right. And he, in order to prevent them getting someone new who would have discovered the embezzlement. Now, in this episode, as Fred Owens, the business owner, his business is embezzled from, okay, to the point that they were about to turn off the lights and the water, now he's thinking he's successful because uh, he sold three bed sets last month, okay? But the money that's coming in is being funneled out to uh, maintain or create a lifestyle, create and maintain the lifestyle that Marjorie wants as opposed to Stanley. And Stanley's doing this to keep her, okay? So... Thankfully, he's not. And and again, like the person or people who are being embezzled from are not the victims of murder. It is the people who would be able to expose the embezzler who gets murdered in both of these episodes. The difference also is that another similarity, but difference. Right. So in no laughing murder mac and murray thought there was no money coming from the video sale so they had just come to terms with that and weren't even checking for it so he could steal with reckless abandon and there were other deals that since mac no was it murray the yeah there was the heavy set one <laughs> and then there was the not heavy set one okay so the one who still had a tv show right him he was still getting money from other ventures farley was able to get him to invest quote unquote invest in deals that seemed to always fall through and be uh disasters but in honest in all honesty he was probably having him sign off checks that went to company, dummy companies in Far, that Farley had access to and created. Now in dead letter, but in dead letter, Fred thought his business was doing well. He had no idea of the financial crises that Stanley had put him in. So he is just living wild and free. Okay, think of his business is doing great when in fact it's not he's living off credit and goodwill okay because Stanley then took all this money and I think so I think it's interesting that you have the same actor playing the different roles so you have him in one being the embezzler and in the other one, this one, dead letter, he's being embezzled from both having the embezzler murder somebody to cover their embezzlement. Okay, say that three times fast. Anyway, so <laughs> so yeah, I thought that was very interesting as well. Now, so you had uh, a good callback, which was this part, the embezzlement thing. And you also had a bad callback, which was Connie Kowalski, who reminded us of the woman from Keep the Home Fries Burning from the health department. That was a bad throwback. And they should just not write any character, but especially a woman character as this level of disrespectful. There, we already talked about it. You know my feelings about it. That's that on that. Anyway, I'm not going to get my blood pressure up again for it So next week, we will be talking about Night of the Tarantula. It's not necessarily one of my favorites, but it'll be fine. And we'll get through it together. So there's that. Anyway, until next time, you can find me on Instagram at the Fletcher Files pod on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook meta at the Fletcher Files pod on Facebook meta. And of course, in the description box is the link to my Patreon, the Fletcher Files pod on Patreon, Ah, the content of it all. Get into it. Okay. We got some new stuff up there right now. So until next time, promise me you will have an amazing week and I will do the same. Until then, bye.